Hello and welcome to our final podcast for 2013. On behalf of the journal, we would like to wish everyone a happy holiday season. Again this month, we will cover the first 10 articles in some detail and then provide a brief summary of the remainder of the issue. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. Sarah, let's get started. Editor's Choice paper this month is A Comparison of Leak Compensation in Acute Care Ventilators During Non-Invasive and Invasive Ventilation, a Lung Model Study by Otto and colleagues. The goal of this study was to evaluate the ability of leak compensation in acute care ventilators during invasive and non-invasive ventilation. Using a lung simulator, the impact of system leaks was compared on seven ICU ventilators and one dedicated NIV ventilator during triggering and cycling at two respiratory mechanics settings, various modes of ventilation, an invasive mode, and two PEEP levels. Leak levels were used up to 35 liters per minute in NIV mode and 27 liters per minute in invasive mode. Although all of the ventilators were able to synchronize with the simulator at baseline, only four of the eight ventilators synchronized to all leaks in NIV mode, and two of the eight ventilators in invasive mode. The number of breaths to synchronization was higher during increasing than during decreasing leak. In the COPD model, mistriggering occurred more frequently and required a longer time to stabilize tidal volume than in the ARDS model. The Puritan Bennett 840 required fewer breaths to synchronize in both invasive and non-invasive modes compared with other ventilators. The authors concluded that leak compensation in invasive and non-invasive modes has wide variations between ventilators. The PB840 and the V60 were the only ventilators to acclimate to all leaks, but there were differences in performance between these two ventilators. It is not clear whether these differences have clinical importance. Although leak compensation is available in acute care ventilators to improve patient ventilator synchronization in the presence of leaks, there are few data on these ventilators' ability to prevent triggering and cycling asynchrony. This is most important during non-invasive ventilation. This lung model study addresses that issue. They found that leak compensation in invasive and non-invasive modes varies widely between ventilators, but it is unclear whether these differences have clinical importance. In their editorial, Vigno and Pequilod point out that the very large leaks used in this study call into question the clinical applicability of the results and suggest that additional bench tests using less challenging conditions should be conducted. Our next paper is Role of a Respiratory Therapist in Improving Adherence to Positive Airway Pressure Treatment in a Pediatric Sleep Apnea Clinic by John Hekar et al. The author's hypothesis was that the addition of RT visits to a PAP clinic would improve PAP adherence. RT services for PAP patients were introduced in a multidisciplinary pediatric sleep clinic in May 2006. The authors identified children who had been followed in clinic and had adherence download information before and after introduction of RT services. They collected demographic, polysomnography, and CPAP adherence data at clinic visits. Forty-six subjects met criteria for inclusion. 
The mean age was 15 years, and the mean apnea-hypopnea index was 27 events per hour. Other than the addition of the RT intervention, all subjects continued to receive the same clinical services as before. Subjects were divided into three groups based on baseline adherence, 0% use, use for 1-50% to of nights, and use for more than 50% of nights. There was a significant improvement in PAP adherence in the subjects with baseline use of 0% and 1-50%, to but no improvement in those with greater than 50% use at baseline. There was no significant change in PAP use at subsequent RT visits. The authors concluded that utilization at clinic visits of an RT trained in the use of PAP improved adherence in pediatric subjects with obstructive sleep disordered breathing when their baseline PAP adherence was less than 50%. Many pediatric patients need PAP for treatment of obstructive sleep disordered breathing. Adherence to PAP in adults and children is often poor and not sustained long term. This is an interesting study that assessed the role of a respiratory therapist in improving adherence to PAP treatment in a pediatric sleep apnea clinic. They found that utilization of clinic visits from a respiratory therapist trained in the use of PAP improved adherence in pediatric subjects with obstructive sleep disordered breathing, particularly when their baseline PAP adherence was less than 50%. These results support the value of the respiratory therapist in this setting. Non-invasive ventilation for acute hypercapnic respiratory failure, intubation rate in an experienced unit, is by Contu et al. They assess the rate of NIV failure and to identify early predictors of intubation under NIV in patients admitted for acute hypercapnic respiratory failure in all origins in a unit where the staff was experienced in its use. This was an observational cohort study using data prospectively collected over a three-year period after the implementation of a nurse-driven NIV protocol in a 24-bed medical ICU of a French university hospital. Among 242 subjects receiving NIV with a PaCO2 greater than 45 millimeters of mercury, 67 had cardiogenic pulmonary edema, 146 had acute on-chronic respiratory failure, and 29 had other diagnoses that were mostly pneumonia. Overall, the rates of intubation and ICU mortality were respectively 15% and 5%. The intubation rates were 4% in cardiogenic pulmonary edema, 15% in acute on-chronic respiratory failure, and 38% in the others. After adjustment, non-acute on-chronic respiratory failure was independently associated with NIV failure as well as a pH less than 7.3 and a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio of 200 millimeters mercury or less after one hour of NIV initiation. Altered consciousness on admission and ventilatory settings had no influence on outcomes. 
the authors concluded that intubation rate could be reduced to 15% in patients receiving NIV for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, with a mortality rate of only 5% whereas the risk of NIV failure is associated with hypoxemia and acidosis after initiation of NIV, it is also markedly influenced by the presence or absence of an underlying chronic respiratory disease. NIV failure is common in patients with COPD admitted to the ICU for acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. These authors found that the intubation rate could be reduced to 15% in patients receiving NIV with a mortality of only 5%, whereas the risk of NIV failure was associated with hypoxemia and acidosis after initiation of NIV, it was also influenced by the presence or absence of underlying chronic respiratory disease. Next is the paper by Valentini, Influence of the Admission Pattern on the Outcome of Patients Admitted to a Respiratory Intensive Care Unit. Does a step-down admission differ from step-up one? The authors prospectively analyzed data collected from 326 consecutive patients admitted to a 7-bed RICU. The primary endpoints were survival and severity of morbidity-related complications, evaluated according to the patient's location prior to RICU admission. Three admission pathways were considered, step down for patients transferred from ICUs of the hospital, step up for patients coming from respiratory wards or other medical wards, and for patients coming directly from the emergency department. The secondary endpoint was the influence of several risk factors for morbidity and mortality. Of the 326 subjects, 28% died. Overall, subjects admitted in a step-up process had a significantly higher mortality than subjects in the other groups. The mortality rate was 64% for subjects admitted from respiratory ward, 43% for those from medical wards, and 18% for subjects from both ICU and emergency department. Subjects admitted from a respiratory ward had a lower albumin level, and SAPS-2 score was significantly higher in subjects following a step-up admission. About 30% of the subjects admitted from a respiratory ward received NIV as a sealing treatment. The highest odds ratios related to survival were subject location prior to RICU admission and female sex. Lack of use of NIV, younger age, female sex, higher albumin level, lower SAPS-2 score, higher Barthel score, and absence of chronic heart failure were also statistically associated with a lower risk of death. Until now, no study has considered outcomes related to location prior to admission to a respiratory ICU. These authors found that step-up patients transferred because of clinical deterioration from a medical or respiratory ward are more severely ill and more likely to die. Age, Female sex and nutritional status were also important determinants of survival. Interestingly, they found that use of NIV in the respiratory ICU was often not curative, but only palliative. 
Hospital at Home for Neuromuscular Disease Patients with Respiratory Tract Infection, a pilot study, is by Vianello and colleagues. The authors conducted a prospective randomized controlled trial in a university teaching hospital offering secondary care service to a population of approximately 500,000. They recruited selected patients with neuromuscular disease and respiratory tract infection where hospital admission had been recommended after medical assessment. Hospital at home was provided as an alternative to inpatient admission. The main outcome measures were need for hospitalization, treatment failure, time to recovery, death during the first three months following exacerbation, and cost of patient care. Among 59 consecutive patients eligible for the study, 53 met the criteria for hospital at home. 26 subjects were randomized to home care and 27 to hospital care. No significant differences were found in treatment failure, time to recovery, or mortality at three months between the groups. Hospital at-home failure was independently correlated with the type of neuromuscular disease, with an odds ratio of failure of 17 for subjects with ALS. The total and daily direct cost of patient health care was significantly lower for the subjects who were successfully treated at home compared to the hospitalized individuals. The authors concluded that hospital at home is an effective alternative to hospital admission for selected patients with neuromuscular disease and respiratory tract infections. The hospital at home model may provide adequate care without an adverse effect on clinical outcome and is generally well received by users. In this study, the authors found that hospital at home was an effective alternative to hospital admission for selected patients with neuromuscular disease and respiratory tract infections. This model could be studied in other populations where it also has potential for benefit. Our next paper is by Stoller and colleagues, and its title is Radiofrequency Tracking of Respiratory Equipment, Rationale and Early Experience at the Cleveland Clinic. To optimize RT's ability to quickly locate ventilators, the authors developed and implemented a radio frequency identification, RFID, tagging system called eTrack. The Clinical Engineering and Information Technology groups at Cleveland Clinic collaboratively developed a Wi-Fi-based RFID program that used active RFID tags. Altogether, 218 ventilators, 82 non-invasive ventilators, and various non-respiratory equipment were tagged beginning in March 2010. The E-Track system had a mean of 145 logons per week over the first year of use and was associated with a decreased time required for RTs to locate ventilators, median 18 minutes versus 3 minutes. Surveys of RTs regarding whether equipment was hard to find before versus after implementing E-Track showed a non-significant trend toward improvement. The authors concluded that an RFID tracking system for respiratory equipment shortened the time to locate ventilators and non-significantly improved RT satisfaction with finding the equipment. The ability of respiratory therapists to find equipment quickly is desirable to expedite patient care. Thus, the radio frequency identification tagging system described by Stoller is of interest. 
It is of note that the RFID tracking system shortened the time to locate ventilators and improved respiratory therapist satisfaction with finding equipment. Nebulized albuterol delivery in a model of spontaneously breathing children with tracheostomy is by Berlinski. He compared albuterol dose delivered to a model of spontaneously breathing children with tracheostomy using different nebulizers, tracheostomy tube sizes, inhalation techniques, and breathing patterns. A tracheostomy model was connected in series to a breathing simulator with a filter interposed. Simulated were the breathing patterns of a 16-month-old and a 12-year-old child and tested tracheostomy tubes with an internal diameter of 3.5 millimeters and 5.5 millimeters. Albuterol nebulizer solution was used. A PARI LC Plus breath enhanced nebulizer, an AeroEclipse breath actuated nebulizer, and an Updraft 2 OptiNeb nebulizer that continuously delivers aerosol were operated for 5 minutes at 6 liters per minute. The updraft tube was tested with T-piece and mask interfaces, with an extension tube, and with and without assisted breathing, every breath and every other breath. The amount of albuterol delivered was analyzed via spectrophotometry. Particle size distribution was measured with a cascade impactor. The PARI LC Plus was more efficient than the updraft tube or the Aero Eclipse. Assisted breathing with the updraft 2 with extension increased albuterol delivery with every other breath being superior to every breath technique. Adding an extension tube increased delivered albuterol. T-piece was more efficient than the mask. Breathing patterns with large tidal volume increased albuterol delivery. Tracheostomy size had less impact on drug delivery. Mass median aerodynamic diameter decreased by 48 to 74 percent when passing through tracheostomy tubes, and 0.8 percent of the nominal dose was deposited in the tracheostomy tube. The author concluded that albuterol delivery in a model of spontaneously breathing children with tracheostomy is influenced by type of device and configuration, use of assisted breathing, breathing pattern, and tracheostomy tube size. Mass median aerodynamic diameter significantly decreases during passage through a tracheostomy tube. Berlinski evaluated nebulized albuterol delivery in a model of spontaneously breathing children with tracheostomy. Albuterol delivery with tracheostomy was influenced by type of device and configuration, use of assisted breathing, breathing pattern, and tracheostomy tube size. These results informed the practice of aerosol therapy in children with a tracheostomy. Not surprisingly, mass median aerodynamic diameter significantly decreased during passage through the tracheostomy tube. Another aerosol-related paper is by Coates et al., and its title is Respiratory System Deposition with a Novel Aerosol Delivery System in Spontaneously Breathing Healthy Adults. An in vitro study suggested that the AeroNeb Go with the ID Haler pocket and face mask would deliver 16 mg per minute of magnesium sulfate to the respiratory system in older children, and approximately a fifth for toddlers, but no in vivo data exist. 
Saline mixed with a radio label was used as a proxy for the 100 mg per milliliter magnesium sulfate solution. In five adult males, the rate of deposition was measured using nuclear medicine techniques. The radio label deposition below the vocal cords was converted to the rate of deposition of magnesium sulfate and compared to the results from an in vitro model using adult respiratory patterns. The mean rate of deposition was 13 mg per minute. The reason for this lower deposition compared to the in vitro estimate was likely exhalation of anatomical dead space aerosol, which would have been captured on the inspiratory filter in vitro. The authors concluded that these in vivo data confirm the deposition data predicted in the in vitro study, although caution should be used extrapolating to children. This device appears suitable for the clinical trial of inhaled magnesium sulfate in children and adults with refractory asthma. In this study, the authors evaluated the use of a vibrating mesh nebulizer coupled with a holding chamber and face mask for delivery of inhaled magnesium sulfate. Their data confirm earlier in vitro data. Further work is needed to determine whether this system has a role in patients who present with severe acute asthma. Our next paper is Impact and Predictors of Prolonged Chest Tube Duration in Mechanically Ventilated Patients with Acquired Pneumothorax by Cow et al. This retrospective observational study included 106 ventilated subjects who had been treated with thoracostomy for pneumothorax between May 2004 and December 2011. The authors analyzed 61 subjects and 63 events. The subjects were divided into prolonged chest tube duration group and a non-prolonged group. Subjects with prolonged chest tube duration had significantly higher ICU mortality, longer ICU stay, longer hospitalization, longer mechanical ventilation after development of pneumothorax, higher maximum peak inspiratory pressure, and a higher rate of surgical emphysema. High peak inspiratory pressure and surgical emphysema remained independent predictors of prolonged chest tube duration after multivariate logistic regression analysis. The probability of chest tube removal within 28 days was significantly lower in subjects with both high peak inspiratory pressure and surgical emphysema compared to subjects without any risk factors. The authors concluded that high peak inspiratory pressure and surgical emphysema are independent predictors of prolonged chest tube duration and negatively impact clinical outcomes in this patient group. The findings of this study may better inform chest tube management. It is of interest that the authors found that high peak inspiratory pressure and surgical emphysema were independent predictors of prolonged chest tube duration and negatively impact clinical outcomes. The influence of purulence on ciliary and cough transport in bronchiectasis is by Tamboscio and colleagues. The authors analyzed and compared the transport properties of respiratory secretions with mucoid versus purulent appearance in patients with bronchiectasis and in subjects without lung disease. In a simulated cough machine, they assessed the mucociliary transport and contact angle of 32 mucoid and 19 purulent samples from subjects with bronchiectasis 
practices, and 21 samples from subjects without lung disease. Mucociliary transport was lower in the mucoid samples and in the purulent samples than in the samples from subjects without lung disease. The purulent samples had less displacement in the simulated cough machine than did the mucoid samples or the samples from subjects without lung disease, as did the mucoid samples compared to the samples from subjects without lung disease. The purulent samples had a higher contact angle than did the mucoid samples or the samples from subjects without lung disease, as did the mucoid samples compared to the samples from subjects without lung disease. The authors concluded that respiratory secretions in individuals with bronchiectasis have poor transport properties, which manifest as reduced mucociliary transport, reduced mucus transport by cough, and higher contact angle. These features were more accentuated in the purulent samples. These authors analyzed and compared the transport properties of respiratory secretions with mucoid versus purulent appearance in subjects with bronchiectasis and those without lung disease. Respiratory secretions in individuals with bronchiectasis had poor transport properties, which were more accentuated in the purulent samples. This may assist in clinical care and to obtain more homogeneity between groups of subjects in research studies. Additional six original research papers this month. Chest wall mobility is often measured in clinical practice, but the correlations between chest wall mobility, respiratory muscle strength, and lung volumes are unknown. In the study by Lanza et al., the authors found that chest wall mobility is related to respiratory muscle strength and lung volumes in healthy subjects. The 4-meter gait speed has been associated with functional capacity and overall mortality in elderly patients. Depew et al. evaluated the association of 4-meter gait speed with meaningful outcomes. They report that 4-meter gait speed was associated with 6-minute walk distance and thus may serve as a reasonable simple surrogate for the 6-minute walk test in subjects with chronic lung disease. Guan and colleagues investigated the use of impulse oscillometry for leukotriene D4 inhalation challenge in asthma. They found that it has a diagnostic power similar to that of spirometry. Although self-inflating bags are widely used for manual hyperinflation, they do not allow ventilation parameters such as pressure or volume to be set. Ventilation performance of neonatal and pediatric self-inflating bags was investigated by Oliveira et al. They found that performance of neonatal and pediatric bags varied by manufacturer and oxygen flow and that the neonatal bags showed higher ventilation parameter variation than the pediatric bags. Pulmonary microcirculation abnormalities are the main determinants of pulmonary arterial hypertension pathophysiology. Demopolis et al. evaluated peripheral muscle microcirculation with near-infrared spectroscopy before and after hyperoxic breathing. They found substantial impairments of peripheral muscle microcirculation in subjects with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Acute hyperoxic breathing improved resting muscle oxygen saturation and decreased reactive hyperemia time during reperfusion, possibly due to increased oxidative stress and evoked vasoconstriction. 
Mesquita and colleagues investigated respiratory muscle strength and related factors in patients with COPD during and after hospitalization for exacerbation. They found a high prevalence of inspiratory muscle dysfunction in patients hospitalized for COPD exacerbation. Interestingly, inspiratory and expiratory muscle strength increased markedly during and after hospitalization. The degree of airflow obstruction and hyperinflation were related to inspiratory and expiratory muscle strength. This month, we publish a review on the value of autofluorescence imaging video bronchoscopy in detecting lung cancers and precancerous lesions. We also publish a systematic review on non-pharmacologic airway clearance techniques in hospitalized patients and an accompanying AARC clinical practice guideline on the effectiveness of non-pharmacologic airway clearance therapies in hospitalized patients. Our case reports deal with anabolic androgenic steroid and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome and the efficacy of high-flow oxygen and active humidification in a patient with acute respiratory failure of neuromuscular origin. Our teaching case is recurrent catamenial pneumothorax caused by diaphragmatic fenestration. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.